Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast that explains your world. I assume you sought us out because we are here recording live on the day after Election Day 2020. And as of this moment, things are still a little up in the air. Happily, last week's guest, Dr. Kevin Gutzman, a WestCon history professor, explained the Electoral College. So if you are looking at the maps right now, you understand what everybody is flipping out about with the different states and why they are important. Today, we are talking with Dr. Howell Williams, a political science professor at WestCon, who is going to further explain how we got here and where we are going. We are all going to be here at WestCon through Thanksgiving, so we will also let you know what's on the calendar for the campus and Main Street Danbury. I'm Paul Steinmetz, here with Pete Puccio. Thanks for downloading us. All right, so we got any, uh, any news from campus this week? Anything going on? Anything interesting? Anything? Yes. You know, uh, we've had a little increase in positive COVID cases. There's like five uh, commuter students and a couple of residential students. One resident student is um, quarantining or isolating in Fairfield Hall. Um, The other positive cases, students with positive cases, have gone home. There are people quarantining on campus, which means they got to stay away from everybody. And although they still can stay here and are taking their classes, of course, and so are the ones who are living with their parents off campus. Uh, so we've seen a little increase. <coughs> so we've seen a little. <coughs> you heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how does that work? A are, we doing, increase. <laughs> are we doing our own uh, contact tracing and stuff? So if I were... Yeah, if someone in my orbit has has come down positive, I'll be notified by by someone on campus. Is that how that works? For the most part, if you live on campus, you'll be contact traced by a nursing student, and if you follow the protocol, you'll talk to the student, the nursing student, every week, and until you get tested and it says positive, uh, negative, or you feel better or whatever, you'll have to have the test. Uh, if you are living off campus, the health department in the city or town you're living in will contact trace you and follow you. Okay. But you will be traced. Okay. So once somebody is positive, that, that, that triggers that whole thing and people yep. around them will be notified. Okay, great. Yep. You know, we count a little bit. If you are a commuter student who comes on campus once a week, we rely on you to tell us that you've had a positive test because uh, we're testing a 25% of the residential students every week. So we'll catch somebody who's positive and doesn't even know it if they're living on campus. Commuter students, it's a little iffier, so they have to tell us and let us know so that we can do the contact tracing with people who may have been in their classes with them. Okay. But so far, the people have been doing that. Our positivity rate is at 0.95%. That is That compares to Danbury, which is a 6.5% right wow, now. Wow, so we're doing well. Good. We are, yeah. People are paying attention. They're wearing their masks. They're washing their hands. They're staying six feet apart. It's all good. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody on campus with that one. Except for me the other day. 
I went. <laughs> I was oh. in a hurry. I went over to the ID office and got about halfway across the quad. I may have told this story, and uh, took a uh-uh. nice a nice breath of fresh fall air, and then realized that I didn't have a mask on, so I covered my face and ran for the building. And I was apologizing to everyone I saw, feeling like a monster. Uh, it was pretty <laughs> funny, but uh, it was weird. It felt very strange to be out there, and you know exposed yes. after all these months of mask wearing so i know but it's so it's been five or six months which is not that short a time to uh when you think about it six months ago you felt weird when you put on the mask right or if yeah. you saw somebody with a mask you'd make fun of them and now if you see somebody <laughs> without a mask you're horrified yeah i don't want to see people's faces anymore i don't want to see noses and mouths it's weird <laughs> no no and please stay away yeah Oh, well. What a world. Yeah, it is. And it's going to go on for a while more, too. So, gear up for it. All right. Uh, before we get Howl on, do you want to give your, uh, your your thoughts and feelings on last night? Sure. Uh you know, I hope I don't offend anybody, but I'm a tax and spend liberal, so I was all in for Biden. And uh, I had read all the polls obsessively every day leading up, for, you know, for months leading up to this thing. So as soon as uh, Florida at about 7.05 starts trending for Trump, I was beside myself. I was, like, you know, practically sobbing because I thought that was the end. And obviously it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, today it's clear that Trump won all the states that he won last time four years ago. Biden has won all the states so far that he won last time. And there's these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven states that are still up in the air. And uh, they're going to decide everything. And... I was, I did stay up until about 11 and was hoping that there would be something decisive, but I slept pretty well. I woke up at six and looked at the, uh, my phone and didn't burst into tears. So yeah, I'm feeling okay about it. Yeah. This was the first year going back to 2000, I guess, where I didn't really follow the results. I mean, I was checking in periodically on the, uh, the Associated Press has a really great, uh, if you just Google election results, the first thing that pops up is their map and you can dial it down into which races you want to see or which states or, you know, as, as down granular as you want to. It's a really, really great thing. And Associated Press is kind of the, as far as I'm able to gather, is like the, the gold standard when it comes to calling these races. Um, yes. That's who NPR uses and, and a lot of the, the, my what I feel are the more trustworthy uh, sources. Yeah, and so I was watching that periodically, checking in to see the numbers jump, but certainly not watching it like I have in the past, where I'm, you know, was locked into the coverage and and absolutely four years ago. I mean, my wife and I sat and watched it for hours and hours and hours because we had a newborn hmm. uh, son, so we were up anyway. And um, I just <laughs> I didn't want to do it. I don't want to. I don't want to watch. You know. Um, yeah that closely anymore i just i want my life to go back to normal i don't want politics to be the end-all be-all like it has been for the last four years so yeah well good for you i haven't quite gotten there yet yeah we'll see how it goes i'm still uh you know my my sister told me this 
Uh, the Onion had a, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a headline, but it was a picture of a woman at a, at a table with her head in her hands. And the headline was, uh, what was it? Woman wonders if she was worried enough to get her candidate over the finish line or something like that. It's like, yeah, because I didn't volunteer. I didn't donate. I didn't call anybody. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. I just sat yeah. and thought about it for the last, you know, year. So I don't have much, uh, much of a right. leg to stand on if I'm unhappy with the results, but we'll see. Yeah, I guess not. I swore a few times, too. <laughs> oh, man. I will wait for the expert to actually tell us how to think. Yeah. So today we are talking with an expert who can tell us what to think. Hal Williams, he's a professor of political science here at Western Connecticut State University. And I'm sure he was, unlike Pete, glued to the television all night. <laughs> all right, let's bring him on. Okay, good. So Hal, you've done this before. You know, I do a... Uh, uh, I record an intro beforehand and everything, and so we can just start talking. Okay, great. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on the day after Election Day, and it's or maybe I should say, okay, Dr. Williams, political science professor here at WestCon. You've been very invested in the in paying attention to the election. How does it look today compared with uh, what you were thinking yesterday or the day before? Um, well, on the first glance, it looks a lot like I thought it was going to look in that, uh, at least at the presidential level, the race is very close. I was anticipating a fairly close uh, result in the Electoral College, and, and that's what we see. A couple of outlier states or states that I wasn't quite expecting to go the way that they ended up going, um, Florida being probably the biggest of, among those, and a number of states still too early to call, which again was something that I think a lot of people anticipated with uh, this election. So things seem, you know, about where we were expecting. The, the caveat with that is that it's been a fairly unprecedented year. It's been a fairly unprecedented election. And so there are a couple of unusual elements to this election that we're seeing. Uh, the, the results from early voting, for example, um, you know, a few, a, a number of dynamics that are, that make this year a unique election. But overall, I'm seeing kind of what I kind of anticipated over the last couple of days. You thought or anticipated that the country would be as divided as it seems. It's very close election, it looks like. And um, I, does that represent in your mind that uh, the country's divided or is it something else? I think there is no question that this country is very deeply divided politically. And I don't think that this election has done anything to indicate to us that the days of polarization are somehow receding. In fact, I think that we are due for even more intensified polarization, if you can imagine, in the next Congress, especially if if it appears that the Senate Republicans are able to control their power in that chamber. Um, and those are real concerns. I think that, you know, for those of us that have been watching elections for a few decades now, um, the polarization and the partisanship that we see in our politics now feels extremely unsustainable. 
And so I think that's why a lot of people were looking at this election to be kind of a mandate on the way that politics has been practiced over the last period of time, especially over the last four years. And I haven't seen the results of a single race that have led me to believe that we should expect less polarization moving forward. No, you're right. I mean, I think <laughs> there's no indication that both that e either side hates the other one uh, any less. That's right. And and from uh, thinking about the electorate, there is um, little indication that the base of either party has warmed much to the causes or the issues that are being raised by the opposite party. One one caveat, one small question there, I think, um, is the results in Florida, especially among uh, a number of Latino voters in Florida, especially in South Florida. Um, a, a lot of observers have been really surprised by the level of support that Donald Trump has been able to cultivate in those communities. And I think that speaks to the failure to appreciate the nuances within or nuances among Latino voters. You know, we tend to think of the Latino vote as a kind of electoral block and and the, uh, you know, Trump's sort of decided, no, fairly um, early call for Trump in Florida yesterday speaks to the fact that uh, some people within some, uh, you know, Latino voting blocks in South Florida were warming somewhat to the president's me uh, message, but we we can't generalize out too much from those observations. I, I don't think we've seen the needle be moved strongly in one way or the other um, based on the results yesterday. Mm -hmm. But as you said, they really weren't picked up too much. I mean, the polls that I read. Uh, we're all saying, you know, three to five points in all these battleground states for Trump, uh, for Biden, other than Iowa, which was going for Trump at the end. What do you think about that? What are your observations about that? These polls seem to be um, just about as far off this year as they were in 2016. Well, that is, I think, a big story from this election. There was the lessons from 2016 were widely felt um, you know, in the polling, you know, if we can call them a community. You know, mm -hmm. the pollsters were very aware of how wrong a lot of Americans thought that they got the election. Looking back on the numbers, there were areas where the polls could have done better. One of the major ways was in waiting on education. Um, the polls in 2016 did not do a good enough job of modeling the differences between education among uh, you know, uh, electoral groups. And a lot of pollsters said, we, we've learned our lesson from 2016. And, and so I think people expected the polls to be a little bit more accurate than they were. Now that said, uh, there was, you know, a five or six percentage point advantage for Biden is always within the margin of error. So if you deal, you know, most social science polls have a margin of error floating around three and a half percent. So a plus six Biden uh, prediction in a poll could reflect a Trump win of one percentage point. And that is that is within that polling average. And so mm -hmm. I think 
I think there are two lessons to be learned in terms of polling from this election. One is that the polling community, if, again, if we can call them that, um, still have a long way to go in terms of developing and distributing high quality, rigorous polling. But the second is about literacy among consumers of polling information, people like you and me. I think that we have a collective responsibility to learn more about the fallibility of polling and, and learn more about what polling really tells us rather than what we want polling to tell us. Mm -hmm. And the messaging, I think, is interesting to each of the two candidates, um, how they Oh, you're the, uh, you know, a political scientist. So how did you look at the um, way the two candidates went about trying to connect to the populace or the voting um, populace and, um, you know, convincing them to vote for, for them? I, I guess the second part of that question is how much of the populace really had, was in, um, in the race there? I, I would think there was a large part of number who were always going to vote for Trump and a large number who are always going to vote for Biden. Yeah, that's right. I, th I think more than most elections, we saw the pool of available voters to be really small. Um, in terms of messaging, and, and that dovetails with your question about messaging, one of the most remarkable things about the messaging in this election was the way that the, um, the way that the president sort of refused to change ship the way the, the the fact that Trump was always Trump and he was always going to be Trump um, says a lot I think about his um, intuitions as a politician you know he runs often as a sort of anti-politician but he is a politician um, and I think that his his rhetoric, you know, a lot of people were really pushing him to modify, you know, or, or um, to tone down the more egregious elements of his rhetoric. And he did not do that for the most part. And I think that he, um, it seems like that, you know, that effort wasn't as costly to his effort, to his campaign as some of his advisors uh, had suggested. So you had a fairly bombastic, uh, fairly combative messaging from the president that, um, well, we'll see how good it was at winning over large swaths of voters, but it doesn't seem to me that he turned off voters in the way that I think a lot of people were expecting him to. I think in terms of messaging from the Biden campaign, it was a lot of, we're not Trump. And I think that one of the takeaways, it's still early as we're, you know, as we're talking, they're still tabulating votes. So it's still early, too early, I think, to take big, you know, interpretations of the election. But I, I do think that one of the things that the Biden camp did not anticipate was the fact that the, um, that the anti-Trump message uh, didn't resonate, I think, as, 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 as much as they wanted it to. I think people wanted um, maybe a more positive uh, description about who they were as a party, who the Democrats were as a party in this election. And I, I think the we're not Trump argument only got them so far. 
It, maybe that was it appealed to Biden's base, like Trump appeals to his base, but it didn't go enough to uh, get other people, who were look, as you say, looking for more of a vision, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Very interesting. Um, so say the Congress is the Democrats are in the House and the Republicans have a majority in the Senate. I mean, going forward, is there how does the compromise? Is there any compromise that happens or do they just uh, spit at each other for another four years? Well, I think that we do have, as I said before, a few years of polarized politics to look forward to. I am cautiously optimistic about what a divided Congress looks like under a Democratic president, because McConnell will, if if Biden is successful and McConnell maintains power over the Senate, McConnell will not have a White House to turn to uh, and a White House to scapegoat in the eyes of the American people. And especially if you can stomach it, we have an election in two years in which a number of key states that have been so far pretty decisive in this election will be fielding Senate races. Wisconsin will have a Senate race in 2022. Pennsylvania will have a Senate race in 2022, as will North Carolina. And so, you know, if we use just these three states as an example, McConnell will know that in order to maintain his power as majority leader, he needs to make sure that those three races return Republicans to the Senate. And so that says, I mean, this is a small hope, and I think we still have a long way to go before we even uh, sift through all of the takeaways from last night. Mm -hmm. But those, for those reasons, I think that we could see some some legislation in some areas that matter to the American people. I think um, COVID stimulus is something that is fairly likely, just given the economic impact of inaction on not just America, the domestic economy, but the global economy. I think things, you know, pro policy priorities for the Democratic Party, things like massive health care overhaul, um, judicial reform, which is especially, you know, which it became a really important issue in the waning days of the campaign with the Republicans putting Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. I think those types of policy priorities are probably unlikely in the next two years. But I think piecemeal efforts to, you know, maybe criminal justice, you know, further criminal justice reform, um, some you know, I, I think some efforts are around stimulus with COVID. Those are those are two areas that I think we could reasonably see or reasonably expect some bipartisan agreement. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting for if Biden is elected, uh, what his four years would look like, right? He needs to be uh, to make some progress in some legislative areas and be presidential uh, um, without... Uh, make progress and without infuriating the left on the in the Democratic Party by uh, agreeing too much to the Republicans in the Senate, right? I mean, what kind of uh, path does he have if he's elected to succeed? 
I, I think you're right, but I do want to underscore the fact that even if the Democratic Party were to take the Senate, the left of the Democratic Party was going to be a thorn in Joe Biden's side. I don't think that that changes because of changed control in the Senate. Um, the left flank of the Democratic Party is strong. It's getting stronger. Um, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her squad of of fellow travelers. Um, we saw last night people like Cori Bush in Missouri or um, uh, Mondaire Jones in Westchester County, New York, people who are uh, people of color, people who have espoused, you know, progressive policy I, I, uh, agenda. These folks are, you know, becoming a, a more prominent element of the Democratic Party. Your question about um, legislative achievements for Biden is a question I, I don't know at this stage. And I, part of the reason for that is that Biden has, you know, a lot of his policy priorities have been boilerplate Democratic Party policies for a long time, a kind of, mm -hmm. you know, health care, but not all the way to, you know, universal health care, uh, environmental issues. And environmental issues is another area where we might see some bipartisan agreement. But let me say that I think that Biden's first term in office doesn't necessarily have to be measured by legislative achievement for it to be a success. Um, Donald Trump has been uh, uh, has been a devastating force in the federal bureaucracy and in the administrative state of this country. He has he has decimated the administrative capacity of the federal government. Mm. both through um, active chipping away at legacy programs, things like the Environmental you know, Protection Agency, and as well at a kind of benign neglect, uh, you know, failing to fill positions or allowing for oversight bodies to go unstaffed. And so I think that if he, if Biden is, this is my measure at least of a mm -hmm. successful Biden presidency, if Biden is able to return the administrative state, the bureaucracy of this country, back to its pre-Trump levels, that is where we have a functioning bureaucracy that is capable of carrying out the numerous you know, administrative functions necessary to keep the government in operation, that for me will will be a success. It, it, might, not, it might be a moderate success. Mm -hmm. um, it, it certainly isn't a, a success on the same level as something like a universal health care. But it, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in, in the bureaucracy and in, in restoring Americans' faith in, in government, in, in, the mm -hmm. ability of, in, in the ability of the national government to do things in their interest and for their good. And I, you know, if, if he can achieve that, I think that that is a is a good start. Mm -hmm. So we're talking just for our listeners. We're talking uh, uh, after Wisconsin has been called for Biden. It looks like things are trending in Biden's way in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada. Still up in the air. Um, so it looks like it's everything is kind of pointing at the moment to at least a, a modestly to a Biden win. But uh, Professor Williams, what happens if, you know, Arizona and um, Pennsylvania and Nevada flip for Trump and we have another four years of Trump and he has, a, you know, a one or two um, seat majority in the Senate. He still has a hostile uh, House of Re House of um, representatives 
Um, it's, I don't have a good answer. I don't know. I, I think that we can expect more of the same. I think that we can expect a, a deepening uh, crisis of legitimacy in, especially in the national government. You know, um, Biden has already, as of now, set the record for the most votes cast for an individual for president. He beat uh, Barack Obama's number from 2008. So um, the fact that someone can and, – and I think it's telling as well that in the course of the run-up to yesterday, there was no doubt ever that Biden would win the most votes in the popular vote. The question was always how things went in the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think first and foremost and, – and so that my, I'm an institutionalist, so I'm, an, I'm kind of sidestepping your question about Trump. Um, but first and foremost, I think the biggest biggest casualty will be – to the legitimacy of our governing institutions. I think that people can only vote for so long in elections that do not have democratic outcomes before they begin to push strongly for real tangible democratic reforms. Um, and so you will, you know, you'll continue to hear discussions about um, modifying or, or abolishing the electoral college as, as one small um, effect of what happens if Trump is reelected. Uh, a larger, or um, uh, maybe for, for me, a more interesting question, rather than what happens to Trump, is what happens to Trumpism? What happens to this kind of firebrand um, sort of faux populism that, that Trump represents? And also a kind of impolitic, um, you know, the, the sort of mean, spirited kind of nasty politics that we've seen recently. Um, that, that is a more open question. I, I think that there are a number of signs to point to the fact that whether or not Trump is with us after January, um, Trumpism is here to stay, at least in the mm. Republican Party. Mm. That's interesting, because until um, Donald Trump came along, he no one else would break those norms or be able to get away with it, right? The 22 Republicans right. who ran against him, uh, Democrats, it's just um, even uh, his supporters in the Senate don't go, they can't do what he does, it seems like, and maintain support. Yeah, that's right. He has, he, he allows for a level of, um, a kind of base politics among mm -hmm. among some elements of the Republican Party, um, and it it was, uh, I think, a shock to me and a shock to a number of observers to see how the breakdown in norms supporting democratic government, uh, the speed with which that could take place, the speed mm -hmm. with which people really abandoned the consensus necessary to run a democratic government. Mm -hmm. um, you know, basic bedrock values that historically have been fairly uncontroversial, such as the peaceful transition of power. But, I, you know, with all of that said, Trumpism is possible because of enablers. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has been a big force enabling a lot of the, let's say, more unsavory elements of Trumpism. And just today, um, McConnell has, has said something to the effect of that, that, COVID stimulus will be one of the first things that the Senate approaches when they reconvene next week, which says to me that even 
even the the biggest enablers of Trumpism have limits when when presented with democratic challenges. And I, I do think that though Trumpism will continue in some parts of the party, you know, for example, Madison Cawthorn, a, a newly elected um, representative from North Carolina, he, he took Mark Meadows' seat. The first thing he tweeted when he was elected was um, a tweet that said uh, something like, cry more lib or something like that. So it was really kind of, so, so I think that that, that, that is with us, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that when you take the air out of the room, you know, by removing say, for example, Trump from the white house or whatever, um, it, it has the possibility to, to show the horizon of a politics that is possible. Mm-hmm. This is a more mundane question, but, um, do you think that mail-in voting and uh, voting before in-person voting beforehand is now going to be a trend in the whole country and does it make it better? Uh, is it better to vote that way and make it able to um, for more people to access their rights as uh, voters? I do think that early voting is here to stay. I I, I think that it w- one of the most remarkable things, let me take a step back and I'll finish the answer. One of the most remarkable things about this election, forget about Donald Trump, forget about Joe Biden, is that in the midst of a historic global pandemic, we are on pace to set the highest levels of voter turnout that we have had in over a century. And that speaks for me to our enduring faith in democratic government. And that's a good thing. I don't know for your listeners, wherever you are on the political spectrum, I think seeing the level of support for democracy that we've seen is reassuring for me. Um, The pandemic also showed us that we can do things differently. And so I think that early voting, absentee voting, expanding the franchise are good things. And, And one of the if there's a, you know, for, for the supporters of Biden who might be disappointed that they didn't get more of a, uh, of a sounding defeat of Trumpism yesterday, one of the real positives to the Republican Party being so electorally viable yesterday is that hopefully now the Republicans will come back from the cliff edge of anti-democratic um, jargon and policies that they've really embraced over the summer and, and leading up to this election, stuff like challenging the legitimacy of ballots. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, as we speak right now, there are efforts underway to challenge the legitimacy of ballots that were cast in this election. However, the we have not seen a total repudiation of the Republican Party at the ballot box. So that says to me, if I'm a Republican strategist, that my party can still be competitive and that I maybe maybe I should go back to trying to win elections by having the best ideas rather than trying to play games with the way that the votes are tallied, which mm-hmm. I think is a pos- yeah, I think that's a positive thing for uh, for the system of government overall. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Dr. Hal Williams here at WestCon. I really appreciate your time today. It was uh, you did a great job explaining where we are right now. Thanks for having me, Paul. My pleasure. We'll Take have care. you back too. Oh, great. Okay, so we're here still at WestCon. We're going to classes virtually and in person, and we're 
on campus doing things on person too. There is a, oh, the game room. Is that what I said, Pete, we were going to talk about? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the game room is always open, I guess. It's on the second floor of the Midtown Student Center. You can play pool, air hockey. We had our guest on a few weeks ago who uh, brought the first pool tables to Westcon. And uh, that was quite successful. It's been here for 35 years or something, right? Yeah, go see what she was talking about. Yeah, you still have to wear your mask. Sure. So there there is a coffee house scheduled for November 5th. Uh, There's a couple more before we get, uh, you know, all sent home for the season. So Thursday nights, you know, I believe this week, the 5th, is uh, an all-night open mic. So if you have something you want to perform or show off or whatever, go down and uh, have at. Yeah. Don't embarrass yourself or to go ahead and embarrass embarrass yourself. yourself. This is what the college is for. It's fine. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, an escape room too, right? A virtual escape room. That should be pretty easy to get out of, shouldn't it? (laughs) Just log off. Yeah. 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 8 to to 10 p.m. on the 5th, uh, a virtual escape room. Uh, You can get details from the the wow or it looks like uh following pack on instagram seems like a really good way to get info for all these things that's a lot of these uh ads mention you know following them on instagram so i would i would recommend doing that yes uh speaking of pack they're doing uh what i think is the last bingo of the season uh this friday Mm -hmm. the sixth in the tent on the midtown rec field uh from eight to ten spooky bingo So uh, it's your last time to win a prize. I could be wrong, but I think this is the last one, yeah. Yeah. Well, you should go if you like bingo and you like winning prizes and see if you can win. We know several people who are, you know, complete losers. They've never won. But uh, (laughs) it's fun anyway, I think. Right? Uh, I know they're oh, looking they're for people to come down and plant flags thing? for the Veterans Day display. It uh, looks like oh. on the 6th, 9th, and 10th from 1 to 3 p.m. You can come down and the, obviously the, the flags are supplied. We just need uh, some human beings to come down and help uh, plant. Hey, that's right. And only you only have to plant 22 flags, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're asking each person to come down. Can you do 22, they say. In recognition of the 22 veterans a day who take their own lives, which is kind of sad, but they should be, um, we need to stop that and help them. Yeah, bring awareness. Right. So we're going to do that at WestCon. Yep. There's a blood drive. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, where I Which is great. Now, of course, I can't find it. Um, It's sponsored by the Biology Club Club on the 10th. Oh, it's at the Danbury Mall. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you can get the bus. The bus does. The shuttle goes down there to the mall. Okay. It's open to all WCSU faculty, staff, students, and anyone from the public. So that means everyone can go. Invite your friends and family. If you're a little nervous about it, go back to the at WCF uh, podcast archives because we did a really good one on how to give blood last semester. Yeah, you and, went through the whole uh, process. Right. And you could hear me, you know, hear, I was on air as they were slipping the needle into my vein. Ugh. I was very brave. And, and it's so easy, humble. <laughs> and you should do it. 
It's all good. Yeah. If you can do it, you're saving a life. And it's something you can do during COVID to help other people. There you go. Yeah. Uh, on the 11th, Wednesday the 11th, it's a, it's a Westcon Wednesday. So if you're on campus, wear uh, some Westcon gear. And you can enter for the chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card just by wearing some uh, some swag. Hmm. Will you qualify too? Because you have a lot of Westcon swag. Uh, I do. I, don't, I, I suppose. It's probably only for students, though. Oh, look at that. Open to oh. WCSU students only. Rats. Oh. Thought it was my chance. You could have won. Yeah. Yeah. I could I'll pretend I could you. get like a backpack and uh, put on a baseball cap and pretend to be a student. Yeah. You could still look like a student. There's no question. <laughs> so, and uh, on November 11th is Veterans Day, right? So there is going to be a, a Veterans Day ceremony on campus at 11 a.m. at the Westside Alumni Pavilion. You'll hear our students share their military experiences. And um, well, I got to the end of the sentence that says we'll dedicate our new dog. What? Yeah. Dedicate our new dog tag tree. Oh. <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Oh, great. Yeah, I've, we've always done, uh, at least, you know, I'm, I'm not a veteran or anything, but I've always felt like the, the ceremonies they do here are, are, are good. They um, are good. You know, it's always interesting speakers, and, and uh, it seems like a, you know, they, they, do, they do a good job of honoring our veterans. And we have a fair number of students who on campus taking classes who are veterans as well. And it's nice to, a lot of them show up, it's nice to recognize them yeah. for their service. Good. You know, I also wanted to uh, just mention that Westcon Midtown Campus is near downtown. It's walkable to Main Street. And um, if you're looking for something to do off campus by chance, there's a, some good restaurants downtown. The one I was going to talk about today is called Mothership Bakery. It's called that because they have a big silver um, Airstream. What do they call those? Trailer, Trailer right outside yeah. the door. Yeah. And uh, that's the Mothership. But the best thing about it is they do really good baked goods you can eat breakfast there lunch they're trying to get their liquor license so they'll be open for dinner too they're very friendly there and they make good coffee so very good yep yeah you get up uh some morning with a craving for some good breakfast head out there it takes about i don't know seven minutes to walk there yeah you head down and, the end of white uh, street make a right and it's uh yeah. it's a couple doors down looks like an old uh dry cleaner it, it was an old, it was dry, an old cleaner. dry cleaner, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they cleaned it all up. Yeah. No, it's great inside. It's and, very cozy. Uh, yeah. It's a nice place. Yep. And I think they give a, a free cup of coffee to students if you show your ID. There you go. Yeah. What else do you need? Nothing. <laughs> I would go there every day. <laughs> all right. All right. Anything else from uh, from campus we need to know about or... I don't think so. You know, stay safe. Stay don't safe. Sneeze in somebody else's face. Yeah, there's a well, there's an uptick in, in cases and things like you were saying in Danbury. So just be a little extra careful if you're 
if you're around. Exactly. And we'll make it through Thanksgiving and then I'll go home to uh, Thanksgiving dinner and stay through like the last week of January. And we'll be all ready to go for the spring semester. It'll be good. All right. But, you know, tune in to us next week for another edition of at WCSU. Pete Puccio and I will be here. I'm Paul Steinmetz. Thanks for joining us. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.